Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, and welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Over the past few years, I've done somewhere around 75 or 80 interviews with authors of monographs, editors of journals, uh, article authors, all of these about specific genocides or issues related to genocide. But I don't ever recall having talked about the question of how one teaches about the subject. So to remedy that, I've invited John Cox and Adam Jones to talk about how one writes a text about genocide, why one writes such a text, and how writing a text about genocide is different than writing and teaching about other subjects. Both John and Adam have long histories in the community of genocide scholars. Both have written important and influential texts, and both have been on the show before. Adam is professor of political science at the University of British Columbia, Okanagan. And John is Associate Professor of International Studies at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, and also directs the Center for Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies there. John, Adam, welcome back, and thanks for joining us again on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thanks. It's great to be here. Pleasure to be here. So before we actually start talking about the text, um, maybe each of you could take just a moment um, and reintroduce yourselves to the audience. Um, Say something about who you are and how you got to be that way, and and how you got to be somebody interested in studying mass violence. And, and Don, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. Yeah, well, I, uh, that's funny. I just recently had to, uh, had to come up with a concise way of explaining how I became uh, pulled into this area of study, because uh, I think in maybe earlier generations, especially of Holocaust history, people often came to it because of family connections and things like that. Uh, but anyway, I think I really found myself uh, being drawn in the direction that ultimately led to getting a PhD in history and studying uh, anti-Nazi resistance, and then going from there uh, into a more expansive area of comparative genocide. I think in large part because of my growing up in the South and the United States in the 60s and 70s and becoming attuned to issues of racism and uh, and injustice, but, but more specifically uh, uh, racism and white supremacy. And then while in college in the 1980s, I kind of had a social and political, uh, you know, and historical, you know, uh, uh, um, awakening, so to speak, uh, through some classes I was taking at the same time that I became involved in the movement in solidarity with the peoples of uh, South Africa, with the South African freedom struggle, as well as with uh, people in Central America who were dealing with uh, uh, with U.S. foreign policy uh, which of course was consisted of military dictatorships and uh, and genocidal regimes such as in Guatemala. So I think it, it was kind of at the same time I was taking some courses on the Holocaust and it was unusual to have courses specifically on the Holocaust back in the early 80s um, that these things, my political and intellectual interests kind of merged, which I think ultimately led me on a path for better or worse, uh, you know, toward teaching uh, and writing about genocide. And so, and John, uh, yeah, maybe, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. no, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, eventually, I also was out of college for many years. I was involved 
in political activism and in uh, attempting to uh, to organize labor unions, which led <laughs> to being fired many times and, and, and eventually <laughs> deciding I should go into a line of work that might provide tenure, <laughs> so, <laughs> which definitely doesn't exist in the kind of textile mills and, uh, and meatpacking plants where I worked uh, 25 years <laughs> ago. Uh, but uh, but then eventually I decided to go to grad school and I ended up at the University of Chapel Hill, where I worked with uh, Chris Brown and among others. Mm-hmm. And and maybe you could say just a, a few things about the center you direct. Yes, please. Uh, thanks for asking. And um, and in fact, the best thing that anyone out there could do to combat genocide would be to, <laughs> to support my center. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but anyway, it's uh, it. it, it it's one of many such centers that tries to combine um, the educational mission with uh, outreach and w- with action. And uh, we also try to not be Holocaust-centric. And so the, the name does, I think, reflect our mission, Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies. To tell you the honest truth, I think in a more perfect world, we should be able to just say genocide studies because uh, obviously that encompasses uh, the Nazi Holocaust. But um, but yeah, the center, I, I helped to found and get the center moving uh, when I came here seven and a half years ago. And so uh, we bring in speakers, we organize panels and, and or organize, you know, uh, research and so on, as well as having a minor in this field. We're moving towards perhaps having a teaching certificate. And we do a lot of work in the community, especially around issues such as immigrant rights and refugee rights and advocacy. And, and we're also holding our first big international conference a few months from now. Uh, which is on the topic of genocide denial. That's wonderful. Um, which I am looking forward to attending. I must wonderful. say. Wonderful. And so, Adam, that's a good segue. Why don't you talk about your? Uh, tell us about yourself. Yeah. Well, it's uh, kind of nice, first of all, to be asked the question without an underlying tone of what on earth would make you interested in a topic like that, uh, which I think is something that. Uh, genocide scholars pretty often deal with and something that I also deal with right up front in uh, the preface of my textbook uh, and try to justify that to a certain extent and to explain why I find it a very challenging and vigorous um, field of study. Uh, One of the advantages, I think, and, and one of the really special, if not unique, features of genocide studies is that virtually nobody comes to it with a degree in genocide studies. Uh, It is uh, a combination of uh, disciplinary uh, backgrounds, which I think is uh, like nothing I've ever seen. And I think that's something that drew me eventually to the field. I'd always had a strong interest in human rights issues. And like John, I did uh, activism around uh, Central American issues in particular during the 1980s. That was pretty much where I cut my teeth. And the case of Guatemala was very much front and center at that time. And the discourse of genocide around Guatemala was there. Uh, but we were still experiencing the very early days of a field of comparative genocide studies. And my uh, research at the graduate level was very much in a different direction. Um, I focused on mass media and political transition, 
which has some overlap with you know issues of civil and human rights, but is otherwise quite divorced from what I ended up specializing in. Um, but in the 1990s, I got very interested in the issue of gender and mass violence in particular. I was doing my master's uh, at McGill in Montreal uh, when the December 8th, uh, 1989 massacre happened just up the road at the Ecole Polytechnique when 14 young women were murdered by a deranged gunman who felt that he had been frozen out of higher education by feminists. And that got me thinking in a very vivid way. I mean, I walked past the the caskets of those women and it got me thinking um, in a systematic way for the first time about gender and violence, but not only uh, mass mass gendered violence against uh, women and girls, but against men and boys also, which is probably the area of early research that uh, first attracted some interest and attention. I I was doing that in the context of uh, political science and international relations focused degree. I wrote some early stuff for journals like ethnic and racial studies focusing on an inclusive approach to gender and mass violence. And then in 1999 happened both Uh, the outbreaks of mass violence and arguably genocide in uh, Kosovo and East Timor. And I started blogging around those events. I started thinking uh, systematically. I arrived at this um, concept of gender side and then discovered that somebody had used it before me. Uh, And uh, that was really my entree to the uh, earliest writings in the field of comparative genocide studies. If I wanted to kind of theorize this idea of gender side, then I needed to know something of the background theory of genocide. And then I'm sure like John, uh, once you immerse yourself uh, in this particular subject, it has a way of getting its hooks into you and holding you there and making its own use of you. So that was pretty much uh, the birth of my interest in the field. And so, so you've both been active in this in a while. Why, and I'll start with Adam, why write a textbook? Yeah, that came about quite fortuitously as I was attending a conference in South Africa in Durban and happened to be seated next uh, to a representative from Routledge Publishers named Craig Fowley. Uh, And, uh, you know, Craig had the very agreeable job, I thought, of flying around the world at company expense and... uh, buttonholing uh, seemingly promising especially younger scholars finding out their field of study and interest and research and then often following up with the question is there a good textbook on that and that was how things played out at that dinner at that conference and it gave me pause and i said well you know we have a couple of anthologies uh, we have History and Sociology of Genocide by Chalk and Jonason that was probably the 
earliest widely used textbook in uh, comparative genocide studies, I said, but I'm not sure there's anything that really does uh, justification, does justice to the um, interdisciplinary aspect of the field and something that's written accessibly and that uh, also has a strong visual component because I've always been interested in the visual arts. I do a lot of uh, photography in addition to my research and writing, and I wanted something that would be visually involving for an ideal student and general reader, something that would work well at both undergraduate and graduate levels, but would also be accessible just to uh, interested members of the public. And within um, 15 hours, I guess, of that dinner, I had a draft proposal <laughs> to Craig, uh, stayed up stayed up a little bit late to put it together, and things went from there, and uh, it, it has uh, established itself certainly as one yeah. of the go-to texts in the field, which is very gratifying. Now, I'm always struck by um, how, uh, how important chance encounters can be in shaping careers. I've heard that again and again talking to authors. John, what about you? Why did you write a textbook? Yeah, well, I'd say, also just to pick up on your point about chance encounters, I think one reason my textbook ended up being published and being published with Oxford University Press was because at one point, 10 years earlier, I answered an email that uh, a publisher probably sent to every assistant professor in the country, especially at universities where they were being so desperately underpaid that they would jump at a chance to make $100 by like doing a, you know, a review of a Western civilization textbook or something. But by doing that, I developed a relationship with this one editor who then later moved to OUP. And then, um, and, and so at any rate, it was in some sense the genesis of my book, uh, I suppose. But uh, yeah, I think I wrote, I decided to write a textbook, uh, I guess in part because uh, as a historian, as you said, I'm a professor of international studies, but I'm really a historian with a PhD in history. And so the big thing is turning your dissertation into a book. Uh, that book invariably... I mean, in my case, I think it was actually a reasonably interesting book with a broader appeal than many such books. But uh, then, but then you get tenure based on that, and then you can actually write something more interesting with a broader, you know, appeal, which is just uh, is one of many examples of the kind of upside down values and priorities in the academic world. But uh, you know, seriously, that you have to have a little bit of freedom and security to write things that are kind of broader and so on. Uh, but anyway. Um, I guess I wrote it because uh, I thought that uh, there are a lot of very good books out there. Adam mentioned one or two. To tell you the honest truth, Adam's book is really the, uh, the best book of that in that genre. Uh, but I thought that there was a little space for a slightly uh, 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 slimmer book you know, <laughs> that could be carried around without the assistance of a, of a wheelbarrow. And uh, and. Uh, uh, but uh, but in all seriousness, seriousness, Adam's book is really marvelous, and it's great that he has the support of his publisher to have images and to, uh, and and so on like that too, which really enhances it greatly. But I'd say outside of Adam's book, a handful of others, it's very difficult to find uh, like just a twenty or twenty-five page chapter on uh, uh, on the Armenian genocide or on the Cambodian genocide. Because there are some other books that are really marvelous, like Specters of Genocide and so on, but that may have been where individual chapters might have 
you know, have come at it from a certain specialized focus and so on, uh, rather than kind of pro- providing some background and an overview and uh, and so on. In addition to making some original, uh, you know, c- uh, connections and uh, analyses and so on. So anyway, it just seemed to me that there was uh, that there was definitely room for the kind of book that I, that, you know, which I think I've written. So uh, I'd, I'd say that's one big reason is to. Uh, I thought that there was a void for this. And also I really set out to write the book in a way that it, it could be useful in classrooms, but could also reach a broader audience. Again, like Adams, I think that there's a de- definitely a general readership out there. And I've often gotten emails from people since it was published a couple of years ago, uh, attesting to that, that, um, that, you know, I think Adam and I both have a way of writing and of speaking that uh, is accessible and that, and, and, and that, and 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 also kind of condenses a lot of uh, you know a lot of secondary as well as primary research. I'll return the compliment and say that I think <laughs> that John's book is uh, the best short introduction to uh, genocide studies by a substantial margin. I think one thing that both of us were uh, aiming for and uh, trying to. Um, compensate for in a sense was that virtually everything that had been used as a textbook or of course you know reading packages assembled by faculty which was I think a quite common way of handling the text uh, requirement in in the early days of the field um, they lacked the kind of unifying authorial voice and uh, I wanted to do something that had a kind of personal and even tone from beginning to end and that was approachable and accessible in a style that I think both John and I have uh, worked uh, uh, and striven for. And, um, you know, so the idea was to have something that was conversational in some ways and that would draw people in rather than um, intimidating them with the subject matter or, uh, for example, on the visual front, confronting them with a lot of atrocity images. You know, that's another uh, aspect of crafting things, particularly for younger readers, about such a, a sensitive and bleak subject is how do you represent that visually but yeah we were both looking i think to have our voices come through and i I think we both succeeded in that yeah i'm wondering you you talk about images i'm wondering if and i suspect it is so maybe how writing a text about genocide is different from writing a different kind of textbook adam did you find this a different process because of the subject Yeah, the only texts I've written are on genocide and another one on crimes against humanity, so I'm not sure how much I have to compare it for. But there's but I've also I've also written at some length about the particular challenges that come with dealing with this subject matter, the challenges of presenting it visually in a way that is evocative of genocide but is not kind of constantly assaultive. Um, And uh, one other thing that I would mention in that context is the challenge of humanizing and individualizing the theme, because as Stalin is reputed to have said, uh, a single death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic, and he certainly knew about that. 
but how do you get beyond these vast and abstract numbers? Um, I've tried to do that partly through the visual element, but also by constantly sampling the testimony of witnesses and survivors and victims, you know, posthumously, um, and uh, really trying to give people a sense of the human dimension and the human consequences of uh, these atrocities. Yeah, if I may say, yeah, I think that's that's one of many really effective features, and I, and also that I see Adam in your th- third edition, you're able to do even a little bit more with that, the, the kind of uh, breakouts or boxes called like one person story and so on. Because, uh, yeah, that is also mm-hmm. at the price of making it a 900 page book, uh, yeah. uh, probably <laughs> further opening the niche for yours. Uh, we might say. <laughs> That's right. That's one reason I applaud your efforts. to. <laughs> so, John, you, as you say, your book is much shorter. You don't have the luxury of including a lot of the testimony and the firsthand accounts that Adam has done. How, how did you try and wrestle with that challenge of writing about this kind of subject? Yeah, well, uh, yeah, well, also like Adam, uh, yeah, for me, it wasn't like a, a deviation from uh, that is, I didn't have to take a break from another book called nice people doing nice things to one another in order to work on the genocide book. But, uh, but also like Adam, I think just as far as the challenge, the kind of, let's say emotional challenge or whatever is that, uh, uh, I, I think the two of us are good examples of probably just about everyone you talk to, Kelly. Uh, you, you know, all of us who are in this field, we are in it because somehow we see enough other things going on in the world and in human history that we have kind of a ba- uh, some kind of way of balancing uh, or maybe integrating the, our understanding of, uh, of human potential for, for good and bad and everything else in between. And so also in the book, I try to like uh, to, to I, I incorporate uh, some images and some uh, anecdotes and stories and, and spotlights on examples of resistance and human solidarity, but in a measured way that's not false, you know, because one thing I really dislike intensely is when I pick up a book by Primo Levi or someone at a bookshelf. Uh, and on the back of it, it says, this is a heartwarming, uplifting story. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like, no, it's not. But within uh, even the, the worst tragedies in human history, we find uh, examples of other human responses. But it's all very complex. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who I don't quote too often, although he's <laughs> at least from his later years. But he has a nice quote that I think uh, I probably got from because James Waller used it in Becoming Evil that there's not some line, it would be nice to separate the world into the evildoers and the good people, but instead there's some line that cuts through each of us and the, and a line that might move around, you know, um, in teaching and educating about the Holocaust. And I often am part of uh, organizing and participating in teacher training workshops for high school teachers and so on. I try to get people past thinking of like bystander, victim, et cetera, and, and that a single, ind- you know, an individual might be, uh, might resist or defy Nazism in one moment and then be some sort of an accomplice in the next uh, and so on. But, um, but yeah, I'd say for me, a challenge was, well, first of all, with the help of my editor, just to come up with the, the, the uh, four case studies I wanted to focus on. But that wasn't too terribly difficult in terms of just thinking of, of ways of having uh, some geographic and thematic uh, uh, breadth and balance and so on. But um uh, but also at the moment, I'm actually working on an expanded second edition. And so 
now it's a little bit more challenging me for me to pitch some ideas and get them accepted about exactly which way to uh, about which other episodes to in- include. But I'm arguing for. Hmm, yeah, well, I'm not expanding that rapidly. <laughs> yeah, I think John makes a, a really interesting point there that the um, the question of individualizing uh, the encounter with genocide is also an individual encounter with one's personal uh, capacity and collective propensity for genocide. And for that reason, for example, um, I began my case study section quite deliberately with genocides of indigenous people rather than a more iconic genocide like the Jewish Holocaust. Um, I adopted a chronological approach and that uh, uh, placed sort of initially and centrally the phenomenon of genocides of indigenous people. And, And that brings the majority of our readers who are students in settler colonial societies face-to-face with the legacy of um, their own collective uh, involvement in genocide, benefit from genocide, and encourages them to be self-critical about uh, their own histories and legacies, and then also to look within themselves and to recognize that there is, as Nancy Shepherd Hughes called it, a genocidal continuum, that there are many stages along that continuum where you can see even in daily practice and in the functioning of ordinary societal institutions, uh, that kind of seed of genocide. And so encouraging people to look around at their own relationships, uh, the the patterns of privilege and underprivilege in their own societies and the way that some of this fuel uh, for atrocities, including genocide, is always all around us. So I've I've written material designed to be used in a classroom, but but I've never written a text. So this is maybe an assumption and you can tell me if it's a bad one, but I'm assuming you need to do some kind of internal analysis of the state of the field as you decide what to cover and how. So I'm wondering how you both would, um, how would you describe the state of the field of genocide studies now, Adam? Uh, Sorry, starting with Adam? Yes. Um, I think it continues to proliferate in an interdisciplinary sense. We're just getting Uh, more and more contributions from uh, new fields in the social sciences. I would mention the kind of proliferation of uh, criminological literature, for example, about genocide. Uh, We're seeing spillover into the natural sciences with um, the forensic strand and uh, the uh, satellite remote sensing strand, for example, of contributions to these fields. So in a sense, the most invigorating thing about the field, which is its unusual interdisciplinarity, has continued to play itself out in um, really notable ways. Uh, And uh, I think we're also continuing the trend of seeing uh, ever greater attention 
to case studies from both the past and the present, a determination to uh, uncover or recover past cases and analyze them through the analytical lens of genocide and also to look around the world today and uh, fasten upon not only specific political military events of the more kind of traditional genocidal kind, but perhaps also um, structural and institutional and background forms of violence uh, and the way that they uh, can also be considered part of the genocidal continuum. Uh, we have a lot of uh, younger scholars that are being drawn to the field. Um, there's a lot of energy at the international conferences for genocide studies. And so I don't see any sign of this wave of interest uh, cresting anytime soon. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I agree with everything Adam just said. I, you know, I just uh, started graduate school 20 years ago and I kind of came like a lot of people who come into what, you know, what we call genocide studies usually came from one particular genocide, which in my case was the Holocaust. But then I already was deeply knowledgeable about a lot of other things, especially Latin American history and African-American history. And so, um, but then as I began to learn about the field, I could already see around the turn of this last century that it was a young field, uh, obviously. And so I think in just 30 or 35 years, you know, basically two generations, it seems to me that the field has definitely expanded in a lot of very, very fruitful directions. I think we've helped to kind of uh, eclipse or maybe resolve some early, well, I mean, some tensions still uh, exist, certainly in relation to how the Holocaust fits into various things. But to me, a lot of those things have been effectively confronted. And, uh, and yeah, as Adam says, I think there's a, a, lo a lot of really exciting directions that things are going in. I've got a number of students, and I don't even have the luxury of having graduate students here, but I've got some really good undergrads uh, who are working on things like uh, something about capitalism and genocide, looking at, and actually, and this young man is going in more creative directions than I would have originally thought. And, um, and as I'm working with someone else who's working on a computer modeling of factors that can bring about genocidal violence. And then I think also, it seems to me that as we proceed, uh, that I think we're getting further away from clinging to a really rigid and static and, uh, and, and legalistic understanding of genocide that, that, that is based on a strict 1948 definition. And so I think then that there's a lot more, that the boundaries are a lot more porous maybe than they were 20 or 30 years ago between genocide studies and, you know, uh, critical race studies, histories of race and racism and, uh, and various other fields. So, so let me follow up on that, John, because I've actually got a question in my notes that is simply, what are your books about? Uh, in other words, both of your books have the word genocide in them and you both spend some time talking about terms. Um, so what are you writing about? And John, you, I, I kind of interrupted you, so I'll let you go on. I think you were headed there. Yeah, actually, yeah, no, thank you, because actually uh, I had to kind of think about that recently because I was invited to give a, a big talk. Uh, my, my university invites uh, uh, three or four people who have written books in the previous year to give a big talk that, that they make a big big deal about and so on. And so I had to think about how to reduce things uh, to a short talk and get quickly to 
the heart of the matter, which is not exactly what I'm doing now. <laughs> but uh, but uh, I, I, I think that my book is really about uh, racism, maybe more than anything. And so I think that that's kind of a thread that goes through it that unifies uh, that unifies every part of the book. Um, racism, of course, is a rel- relatively modern invention of human beings over the last three or four hundred years. But then my book really focuses on modern genocide, and the subtitle is about genocide in the 20th century. So after an introduction that deals with some earlier periods, it really focuses on basically from King Leopold and the Herero Nama genocides up to the present. So I'd say that my book is largely really about uh, about racism and about its uh, about its consequences and its functioning. And it, because of course, of course, after inventing race and racism, the Europeans and their benevolence uh, brought it with them to Rwanda and Cambodia and elsewhere. And so uh, it really does explain a lot. And I think it's also what I try to use to give my book. Well, I think both of us write with a sense uh, of moral urgency, you know, and to me, for me, that's not difficult. Uh, I guess, again, because of my, uh, even my background as a political activist and so on, uh, that it would be very difficult for me to write in like an antiseptic, uh, you know, sort of fashion. But uh, I think in a measured way, it's important to, uh, again, to convey moral indignation uh, and so on. I heard uh, my... One of my mentors was Chris Browning, and he brought Yehuda Bauer to speak on our campus at Chapel Hill about 20 years ago. And I remember Bauer saying something like, um, uh, every historical problem is a moral problem. And I thought that summed it up because we're often in our fields, uh, in the United States at least, often taught to be unbiased, whatever the hell that's supposed to mean. And, uh, but I admit to my students I have a bias against racism and Nazism and so on, which uh, – which are things that are back in vogue in this country. <laughs> but uh, And sometimes I'll even have it, someone higher up in the UNC system will say, you should tone down some blog you've written about this or that. And I'm like, uh, we're not supposed to talk about Trump. <laughs> and I'm, like, I'm like, really? So an outrageously racist, sexist, xenophobic uh, things are going on right in front of you. We should, uh, no, let's talk about something happening halfway around, around the globe, but not about something that's right in front of us. Yeah. Now that question of moral indica- uh, indignation, I think, is something that guides all genocide scholars. And, you know, by contrast, perhaps with some more uh, quote unquote objective and hands off fields of study, people get into this in part because they want to understand the phenomenon, in part because they want to change the world on some level and work to address and suppress the phenomenon in question. So we all have, I think, that dimension of activism and advocacy. And uh, I think for that reason, uh, what I wanted to do in the textbook was be both uh, backward looking and forward looking and talk um, both about the history and legacy of genocide and uh, the origins and evolution of the concept of genocide and all of its fascinating twists and turns and ambiguities. I mean, it is truly an essentially contested concept. And uh, following the theoretical working out of that in the field uh, has been a fascinating thing. Um, 
so I think many people are drawn for that advocacy dimension. And one of the other positive or shall we say constructive dimensions of the field is the opportunity that I think it gives you to immerse yourself in uh, human history and contemporary uh, events. Um, I have always been kind of an information junkie for the past and present. And uh, it allows me to, for example, if I want to understand the Rwandan genocide of 1994, and for that matter, the Congolese genocide that follows uh, very much on its heels, I need to immerse myself in uh, a really sustained and systematic way in the historical writings on the Great Lakes region of Africa, uh, the work of anthropologists, the work of uh, geographers, journalists, whomever I can lay my hands on. And I think that I wanted to do justice to the nourishing intellectual exercise of understanding how this atrocious institution uh, has established itself in human affairs uh, and understanding the range of strategies available to confront it. And one thing I just mentioned finally in that context is uh, that I think it's very important, particularly when you're dealing with um, younger students who may be confronting these issues for the first time. I mean, I have uh, students in junior high school who have used at least a chapter or two of my work, and I'm always wondering about what on earth is going through their minds as they as they read through this. It, it is important to hold out a prospect of hope, uh, and not to do that for simply romantic reasons, but because the legacy uh, of this particular mass atrocity is also a legacy of uh, attempts to intervene and to confront it. And in my final chapter, I have a long section that is titled Success Stories? Question mark, because you, you need to interrogate the extent to which they're success stories. But where I go through a number of cases from Rwanda to the European Union and um, a range of other positive examples of situations where you would think that the type of societal divisions that exist uh, could be fuel for genocide. Indeed, in the case of Europe, uh, have been fuel for it in the recent past, and how uh, instead different options have been chosen and different courses have been pursued uh, as a result of some often really brave uh, norm entrepreneurship, if you want to call it that, which in our field goes right back to Raphael Lemkin and his virtually one-man attempt to establish genocide as uh, an intellectual and historical concept and as a concept in international law. And I think you gave a little bit of context, but there may be people in the audience who don't know that phrase. So can you talk a little bit about norm entrepreneurship? Yeah, I do a lot of work around uh, the phenomenon of international norms and regimes and how it is uh, that regimes understood as 
institutions or networks of institutions come together, particularly in the field of what we call prohibition regimes, um, international projects that seek to suppress and outlaw a particular activity. So uh, the prohibition regime against slavery is probably the classic example. And I'm very interested in the ways that activists and advocates come together for morally imbued reasons rather than reasons of personal self-interest to confront these kind of uh, crimes and destructive activities uh, in uh, the national context and uh, the global context. And so a norm entrepreneur is really somebody who is a morally driven activist or advocate for a cause. And the role of those individuals and forces in human history and in international politics today uh, is something that has been uh, pretty effectively studied in my own discipline, international relations, uh, and, and now has given us a really kind of rich understanding of the diverse set of actors that come together around those causes and the fascinating range of strategies that they employ to kind of entrench these new norms and new moral understandings in international affairs. So John and Adam just referenced teaching. I'm, so this is a question that faces both ways. Um, many of the people in, or some of the people in the audience are teachers. I wonder if you could say a little bit um, and again, start with John, about what you've learned about how to teach this kind of subject and what teaching the subject of genocide, how that informed your decisions about writing a textbook. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I would say, um, I don't know if I have anything exceptionally profound, but I think that in the I think one thing I've, I've done uh, increasingly, and I've been teaching now for about uh, 10 years since I got out of grad school is I'll often pause uh, in a class session or in the semester and ask the students what they wish to talk about more or get into more or, or what we've rushed past too quickly um, and so on. So I'd say I definitely do more of that in my genocide classes than I do in other classes. I, it's a good strategy anyway. It's something I picked up in grad school was even in the middle of a class session to stop and say, uh, everyone write down what, you know, something that needs greater clarification, something that you didn't agree with and so on. But uh, I find myself doing that uh, quite regularly in my, uh, in my genocide studies classes is just to, st to either ask or have people write down topics or questions or themes that they really want to get into more. I guess another thing, a lot of it about teaching is just your personality in the classroom and the way you carry yourself in the classroom. And, um, I, I suspect I haven't seen Adam in a classroom, although we, I brought him here to speak, and I think we both uh, surprise people <laughs> by uh, by being kind of uh, having a senses of humor and being uh, you know <laughs> and being uh, capable capable of talking about other things and of somehow bring uh, having some levity and 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 uh, and and finding side side tracks to go on to to explore other areas of human history that are related to the topic. It's funny sometimes I'll have. Uh, Often on my evaluations, I tend to get good evaluations. People say it's you know, good, help, you know, helpful, always uh, this and that. But um, 
sometimes people say he gets off topic, which I always think is funny because it's like, <laughs> do you really want me to stay rigidly on topic for 75 minutes? You know, but um, but I'd say some of that is just kind of more a function of your own comfort and your own kind of personal style and so on. But I think that I often will have students say that it just that they found that without exactly becoming too lighthearted, <laughs> you know, in a genocide class that they just found it a lot uh more kind of interesting and less uh you know emotionally oppressive or something uh than they would have expected when the semester began yeah i i have to say that uh i find this quite a novel and useful suggestion on john's part to ask my students what they'd like to hear about because uh i think my normal tendency is uh, to some extent, just to launch this stuff at them. And uh, particularly when I have only one semester uh, to get through uh, a course that is now built around a textbook that runs close to 900 pages, I really have to work at trying to rein myself in and be more interactive with students and to be sympathetic and sensitive to um, the impact of kind of bludgeoning young people with uh, case after case and dimension after dimension of these things. So I'm working on that, but it is still a rather traditional lecture format in my case, in part because I feel that I still have so much that I need to get on the table, particularly in terms of historical and disciplinary backgrounds and I wrestle with that. I try to compensate to some extent um, by building the class in a very systematic way around the textbook, which is really why I wrote the textbook in the first place. I envisaged it very much with a number of chapters that would be digestible for uh, a semester's teaching, preferably a full year's teaching, but uh, usually we don't have that luxury. Um, and, uh, you know, just uh, trying to draw people in an engaging and approachable way into this very off-putting subject and to give them a sense of hopefully the intellectual excitement that is associated with engaging with the topic, but engaging with it proactively. All right, we need to understand this in order to be able to craft more effective mechanisms of intervention and intervention not just understood as sending in the peacekeepers, uh, but interventions at um, a global level, yes, but at a national level, in terms of the policies that our own authorities pursue and very much at a local and personal level in terms of the relationships that we construct and manage on a daily basis. And um, particularly once I think you get into some of the later sections of the textbook that talk more about um, personal responsibility, individual stories of rescuers, which I think is a good way to counteract some of the negativity that inherent, uh, inherently comes with the topic, um, and some of the solutions that can be crafted at all three of those levels, personal, national, and international. Um, I think you can get students uh, 
engaging in um, a way that doesn't leave them feeling completely disempowered and overwhelmed. But I'm I'm still grappling. Yeah, with it's the a, yeah. Sad to say, even if uh, yeah, and in, in our system, I, I I'll, I've never had a you know two or a full year to teach it. So, um, and in fact, I'm lucky when I well at least once a year I have a full semester just on genocide. And then I teach another class called Introduction to Holocaust, Genocide, and Human Rights Studies. And then I teach a class on anti-Nazi resistance. And I teach another class. I'm actually creating a class on the U.S.-Vietnam War and its legacies for next semester. But even when I have just a full semester on genocide, and for that class, I, I use Adam's book. But even with the full semester, you can't – I might find myself rushing through East Timor as well as uh, East, Bank, East Pakistan or Bangladesh, uh, uh, all on fall in Iraq in the late 80s, uh, and a number of other things. I just barely have a sentence to say about uh, uh, Trujillo's genocide of violence against Haitians in 1937. Uh, I'd like to talk more about the Putamayo. There's actually a novel coming out very soon about, uh, about Roger Casement. Um, in fact, it should be wonderful because it's written by Martin Tuberman, who's a wonderful writer and historian. But uh, even with the full semester, there's so many things that you can barely uh, get into. So, um, so yeah, it is all quite challenging. I kind of wish the human beings would eventually stop uh, giving us so much material, <laughs> you know. But uh, but also, you know, I think it's important. I like the way Adam approached some of the things he said a moment ago about that, uh, you know, we'll have students who feel like we must do something to stop this right now. Or what can I? What kind of big thing can I do? Like, how can we organize some, uh, something they'll put into this? But there are small things that you can do. And there are small, even gestures or small little moments of solidarity and compassion and or of uh, uh, defiance against injustice, against bigotry that can influence others and have a, a rippling or residual effect. And I think that's important for people to know. Um, in studying, I've learned a lot from studying the history of the African-American freedom struggle. In fact, that really helped me in understanding and analyzing anti-Nazi resistance, that oftentimes, again, it was uh, sw- small acts help to influence other people. So that's important, too. It's, as Adam said, for our students not to feel powerless, is that, um, you know, big, huge statements and being part of big movements is very important. But sw- small things can also make a real difference. And also, I would say to emphasize the diversity of those big movements and what they have accomplished in human affairs that, you know, I certainly draw upon cases like uh, the struggle against slavery, the struggle for women's rights, the struggle for workers' rights, and say, really, look what dramatic changes have been brought about and often surprisingly rapidly in particularly in geological terms but you know in historical terms a few decades can make really remarkable transformations and um, human beings have exhibited a notable capacity to collectively get to grips with challenges of this type phenomena that once seemed irredeemably entrenched in human affairs and and massively atrocious and yet legal and accepted as slavery once was. And uh, the ability to recast the terms of morality on an international scale, um, it's always a fraught enterprise. It seems to be always two steps forward, one step back. Uh, But there are very notable 
uh, victories that you can use, I think, pedagogically to encourage students to think constructively about how to intervene in genocide and how over the long term to Yeah, right. You know, Adam and I are, I think we're almost exactly the same age. I think you're a month older than me or younger. I can't remember. But, uh, but you know, back in 1985 or 88, we didn't envision Nelson Mandela not only being released from prison, but being elected president in 1994. And people didn't envision the, uh, the, the, the Stalinist regimes of Eastern Europe crumbling uh, and so, uh, and again, it, and, uh, in 1955, people didn't envision the real progress that would be made in uh, combating uh, institutionalized racism in the United States. So, but all these things also took some imagination. And so I was just talking with someone outside and we got in a little bit of an argument about Elizabeth Warren, who's, uh, just, yeah, who's sucked to a bizarre level recently <laughs> in her, uh, anyway, in talking about blood and genetics and DNA in relation to cultural identity and so on. But uh, we, people who consider ourselves kind of progressive or on the left side of things in the U.S., don't have much imagination, which is one reason why we, there's only two political parties in this country is because everyone's always afraid to try to do anything new or different. Um, and so uh, I don't want to go too far with maybe an argument against, against the Democratic Party at a time when the Republican is represented by uh, the orangey uh, guy who looks like who sounds like Mussolini and looks like Berlusconi and so on, but uh, I'll just say that sometimes we kind of lack imagination. Um, but we can see in history where people have had imagination and didn't and, and and didn't just think about what was not possible or what is just barely possible within what appears to be you know the limitations of the moment, but rather people had bold moral visions and movements had bold moral visions that led to real change. So that that's actually a, a nice transition to, to as we get to the court toward the end of, end of our time. I, anytime you write a book, you learn things, and I know each of you learned uh, uh, an immense amount of stuff as you wrote your books. But I wonder if you could highlight one or two things um, that you learned from writing this book, uh, a position of yours that might have changed, or a, a theme that suddenly became more important to you. Um, Maybe talk about one or two. And Adam, why don't we start with you? Hmm. I mentioned the example before of engaging with the Rwandan genocide, which I think to some extent for scholars of uh, my and, and John's uh, generation, we are indeed about the same age. I, I do want to just stress that that means, of course, we were very young children during uh, the end of a, <laughs> apartheid <laughs> there. Oh, oops, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In fact, it was on my first, it was my first um, birthday is when Mandela was elected president, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess yeah. that would put it on my third birthday. Thank you very much, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, it, in terms of what I have learned, I uh, the, the Rwandan genocide, I think, for scholars of our generation has something of the same iconic status that the Jewish Holocaust did for earlier generations. And that's not to get caught up in the whole uniqueness debate or, you know, whether the, Holo the Rwandan Holocaust is equal to the Jewish uh, predecessor, but it, it reflects the... Um, 
trauma, I think, that we experienced uh, in the West. Of course, there's a Canadian connection here with the figure of Romeo uh, Dallaire, who was leading the peacekeepers in Rwanda. Just the the utter um, uh, catastrophic abdication of responsibility by the outside world has kind of seared that case into our minds in something of the same uh, way that the Holocaust is seared into the minds of the World War II and after uh, generations. And um, I felt honored in a way to be able and encouraged to engage with the very complex history of that region. And in the most recent edition of my textbook, by contrast with the first two, Instead of having a chapter specifically on the Rwandan genocide and with some tangential comments about Congo and Burundi and uh, related cases, this time the chapter is on genocide in Africa's Great Lakes region. And it is, I think, a, a quite sophisticated regional study of genocides in those core countries and the way that they spill over and uh, historically have interacted with and triggered uh, atrocities in neighboring countries and indeed continue to do so through to the present day. And um, for me, that was uh, personally uh, a real advance to be able to immerse myself sufficiently in those generally rather marginal and obscure cases in uh, the literature and to uh, do them some justice uh, in a way that I think draws students into not just the individual cases, but the interrelationships among them. And uh, so I've, I've grown and learned in that sense. Um, and I think I've learned just a lot more also from a pedagogical perspective about how to engage particularly younger people of a, a range of different ages and familiarity with this subject in the subject and, and try to head off the obvious um, uh, dangers of overwhelming them and dispiriting them, in fact, to leave them feeling more engaged and with a sense of hopefully personal empowerment to, to be able to stage their own interventions. Yeah, Kelly, I guess I'd have to, uh, I, I, I guess, uh, I, I guess I would say that, uh, well, in writing the book, it obviously forced me to undertake just a much closer examination of things that I knew well enough to teach them and speak about with, uh, at least a, facade of uh, authority and so on. But uh, that's one of the things I really enjoyed about writing this book or when um, I have the time to just work on a book rather than trying to balance 20 different things simultaneously during a typical semester and so on is just spending time sitting like, for example, in the library at the, uh, oh man, I don't know how to pronounce it, the place in Amsterdam, the NIOD, you know, Foundation for War, Genocide, the Holocaust, et cetera, uh, the International Social history place outside of Amsterdam, a couple of places in Berlin, and also spent some time in Kigali at the Genocide Memorial Center there. So I'd say um, it's nice to be back almost in a grad student mode because I haven't had too many, too much sabbatical time or anything like that. And to just really delve into the complexities, for example, of uh, what was going on in, uh, 
at the time of the uh, disintegration of the Ottoman Empire and uh, and so on. So I guess that's just more in the realm of uh, factual knowledge, but also of p- putting things together in a, in a different way that this book helped uh, to induce me to do. So, so I know this is an impossible question to answer, but maybe you could speculate. Uh, I want you to imagine you, that new assistant professor flying to a conference, happening to get seated on an airplane next to an editor who asked them if there's a textbook in genocide studies 20 years from now, how would they, what do you think, um, what would a new textbook on genocide studies that's 20 years down the road, can you imagine what gaps they will see and how they will try and fill them? And I'll just let whichever one wants to answer first, go ahead and let the other one pause and think. Take it away, John. <laughs> well, actually, they'll probably have at their disposal the handbook of genocide studies that Adam and I are well, there you go. going yes. to put out eventually. Nice plug. Well done. <laughs> because I, I, I guess there may be something that, could, that we could have more of in a lot of books that exist now. Um, it's things that deal with art, literature, uh, and so on. Um, I would say I would say that's one thing. I think we're already moving to. I think books like Adams and many others have already gone a pretty good way toward er- eroding some of the boundaries between um, something that we might decide is a genocide and something we might decide is merely a massive crime against humanity that has you know uh, the same dynamics as something that we designated genocide. So I think we're already doing good. And um, actually, I'd say that's something that we could can do better at is is having lengthy chapters and sections on things like uh, like race and racism on, uh, and so on without, I mean, that could be integrated into things. I mean, in my expanded edition, I'm going to have a chapter on the U.S. war in Vietnam and maybe also a chapter on the history of racism in the United States, but not by, say, ha, by feeling compelled to classify either of them with the big capital G is saying that they're in the same orbit of uh, human behaviors and of... Uh, institutionalized violence. And so therefore, to understand genocide, we can take in things that we don't have to agree on at the moment are necessarily, you know, fit into most of our definitions of genocide. I mean, for example, even uh, when we were, when Darfur was more at the front of our minds 10 years ago, there were people like Mahmoud Mandini who were very uh, entirely legitimate and sensitive and compassionate people who could dis- disagree about whether or not we had to call it a genocide, but agree that it was a massive crime against humanity emanating from the state in Khartoum um, that required uh, a response. Yeah, I'd say uh, my personal hope would be that when that conversation takes place on an airplane in 20 years' time, uh, the person would respond that, uh, you know, they're old now, but you really still can't do better than Cox or Jones. Uh, <laughs> they're almost in their um, mid-40s. They're, they're in their mid-40s now. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, I, I think to a certain extent, if we were to pat ourselves on the back just a little, Um, I think John and I could say that we have established something of a model 
for future textbooks of genocide studies. I think they all need to wrestle, or, or all future authors will feel a need to wrestle on some level with uh, the origins of the phenomenon historically and its emergence conceptually. I think they will all be interested in providing a range of case studies in some form or another. I think they will all need to do justice to the interdisciplinary nature of the field, which of course will evolve in unforeseeable ways over the next 20 years. And they will all need to get to grips with the dimension of prevention and intervention. Um, those core elements, which both John and I address, uh, it's hard for me to see them shifting uh, fundamentally in the future. There will be many different takes on that. There will be different disciplinary emphases. Uh, and there will be fundamentally different theoretical orientations. And the one question that I have continued to wrestle with over the course of multiple editions of my own textbook is what I have uh, dubbed the return to Lemkin in comparative genocide studies. And what that references above all is the uh, attempt to incorporate the kind of cultural and sociological understanding of genocide, which is at the heart of Raphael Lemkin's original um, conception, that the fundamental crime did not inhere in the physical extermination necessarily of the targeted group, but was aimed at the foundations of identity and solidarity among them. And I have debated that a lot internally and, in fact, have put forward a definition and understanding of genocide that is more clearly focused on the mass killing dimension than is Lemkin's. Uh, Lemkin himself was ambivalent at points, and you can find some support for this even in his writings and framings. You can, of course, find support for it in the United Nations Convention, which does put uh, physical killing first and foremost among genocidal strategies. And you can find justification for it just empirically in the way that the international law and advocacy around genocide has played out. But it's still a somewhat controversial move. And um, there are still people like Martin Shaw, for example, that have moved in a more sociological direction. And I've tried to do uh, justice to that, particularly in the initial and framing chapter of my textbook by asking what is fundamentally destroyed in genocide and engaging with that debate and making clear to people where I personally stand, but that there are other framings and options available in approaching the subject. And it will be interesting to see in 20 years' time uh, whether the field has moved increasingly in that direction towards a more kind of uh, sociological and maybe structural slash institutional understanding of genocide, 
or whether it remains fairly heavily concentrated on cases of systematic mass killing of groups uh, of individuals targeted on the basis of their group membership. That that's really the one uh, theoretical question that I'm interested to see played out. Uh, lastly, I would say uh, that I think probably the single most prominent strand in the field over the last couple of decades has been uh, uh, focused upon genocides of indigenous peoples. I think they are ever more central in our understandings of genocide, and I'll be interested to see whether in 20 years' time they have something of the same centrality or a greater centrality in our understanding of the concept and the history. We've come to the end of our time. Um, and to the listeners, I recommend both books highly. They're both wonderful. I think we should start some kind of betting pool to see whether Adam's next edition will exceed 1,500 pages or will it will be <laughs> I promise it will be shorter. I promise it will be shorter. So, um, John, you referenced the, the book that you and um, Adam are working on. Do you want to say just a word or two about what that is and when it might be out? Uh, yeah, well, uh, I'm not sure about the second part of your question, but I'll just say uh, that where it's it, it, it'll be a, it'll be a multi-author volume, perhaps as many as 40 chapters, and uh, we're going to try to go outside of what we've what, what we've seen in some uh, you know uh, uh, similar volumes, with for example, a more attention to things like uh, like a section on art literature, including theater, and uh, sections on some on, on some new developments. Um, uh, in the field in recent years, uh, so but we still need to talk more about about uh, our, our our plans. But um, but I think it'll be very exciting, and uh, and um, and we'll look forward to discussing it on your show when it makes. Yeah, it I would love to have you when it's done, and 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 whenever you do something in the field. Um, I'd like to end with the last que- the question I always end with, um, although tweaked a little bit for the for today, and I'd like to ask each of you. Uh, I know you've read in many textbooks and referenced some already in the interview. I wonder for um, our listeners uh, who may have some free time next weekend, I've heard free time exists and is a thing for some people. What textbook would you recommend? <laughs> what, what yeah, I, I just used up, I just used up my quota of free time during the world cup last uh, summer. <laughs> and for 31 days, every day I was like, today I'm going to just record these games and watch them later. And before I knew it, I was sitting there watching, mm. uh, and being dismayed by certain by watching Mexico lose to Brazil and things like that, but um, uh, but actually, there's a wonderful book about football, soccer by Eduardo Galeano that I highly recommend. And uh, Kelly, I noticed that you interviewed the fellow who wrote Soccer under uh, under the Swastika, which I'm going to yeah. uh, pick up. Mm-hmm. Uh, just a couple books, kind of in the field. I mean, this book was published a few years ago, and I just picked it up just just very recently. Was John Hotzfeld's. Uh, the third book on Rwanda, the Antelope Strategy, mm. and uh, and I often find myself reading, but uh, it, and in preparation for a class on on the Vietnam War, I've been getting acquainted with a gentleman named uh, Viet Thanh Nguyen, mm-hmm. who's written. I think he's one of these guys who's won a MacArthur Award because uh, he's written so many excellent books in just a very short period of time. But he has a book called Nothing Ever Dies, and he's also has a couple books on refugee experiences in the modern world that I think are very powerful and that are definitely in the realm of, uh, you know, the concerns of uh, genocide studies. Hmm. And Adam, what would you suggest? 
Yeah. I think the most effective kind of anthology reader type volume, um, which to a certain extent um, now supersedes some of the earlier efforts like uh, Chalk and Jonason that I mentioned earlier on. And although it remains an excellent choice, uh, Centuries of Genocide, edited by uh, Totten et al. But um, Jens Meyer Henrik's book, uh, Genocide, a Reader, which is published by Oxford University Press, I think is um, uh, very rich. It's about the right length, not um, excessively long. Uh, and is uh, very up-to-date, probably the most up-to-date in terms of the literature that it is sampling. Um, So that's a particularly uh, good option, I think. And then, of course, there's just been a a plethora of uh, excellent work around individual case studies. Uh, John mentioned uh, Jean Hatzfeld's work, which is very, first of all, compact, uh, you know, all of his books run about 250 pages. I'm not sure what his secret is. Uh, maybe I should uh, chat with him about that. Uh, but um, they're very intimate. They're very lyrical in a way. I mean, they have a literary quality uh, that is unusual in the field. And for that reason, I think could be quite immersive for students. Uh, maybe if I would just mention one book pertaining to a particular case that I think has kind of established itself as a go-to volume in the field. John mentioned earlier on the case of um, the Herrero and Nama in Namibia, uh, which is a good example of a case that has been kind of rescued from history and really analyzed in a fascinatingly broad way so that we understand, for example, the very close linkages between that genocide at the beginning of the 20th century and the later Nazi genocides under Hitler. Um, and I think for uh, it, with that particular case, uh, the, a book by David Olusoga and Kasper Erickson called The Kaiser's Holocaust um, is just a kind of model of how to approach an individual case in a really nuanced and well-researched and well-written way, and then in the later stages of the book to really draw some of those historical and comparative connections. Uh, So, you know, if there is a book about a previously obscure case of genocide that your listeners wanted to turn to to get a sense of what can be done to... Um, draw out these hidden histories from the past uh, to provide the kind of text that can be a kind of canonical work to turn to. I think um, the Kaiser's Holocaust would be a very good example of that. Yeah, and Kelly, if I may, I know you'd probably like to to conclude, but yeah, if I may say, yeah, Adam, I'm glad you pronounced Jens Meyerheinreich's name and I don't know if I just pronounced it correctly or not, but I have to agree. I, I think that, now that book is excellent. It has a publication date of 2014. I just got acquainted with it uh, about a year after that, and I've used it in my class. It's also it's really not easy, to, that kind of reader, to, uh, to, to somehow find, you know, to, to, to 
find two, three, four page excerpts from multiple, from actually from many dozens of sources. But I think he does really a masterful job of that. And also his own introduction about a 40 page introduction is really marvelous and extremely useful for anyone who's interested in these things. So yeah, I agree. That's an exceptionally good book as is the second book that Adam mentioned. And, um, there's also for people teaching, uh, genocide, uh, there's a great BBC documentary. Uh, I believe it's called Namibia Genocide and the Second Reich. It's easy to find if you Google it up. And they speak with one of the co-authors of that book, The Kaiser's Holocaust. And they also speak with Benjamin Madley and other experts. And it's, it's a very well-done genocide. Benjamin Madley's recent book on genocide in California in the middle of the 1800s is also, I think, an excellent uh, book of, of recent uh, origin. That's called an American genocide. Right. Yeah, exactly. Well, I just want to say, excuse me, thank you so much for your time. Um, the listeners don't know we've been working on this for a while, and I appreciate your patience and um, the ability to clear your schedule on a Friday when you could be doing other things like, oh, perhaps grading or other things that brought I'd, us into I'd much the profession. I'd rather talk about genocide. <laughs> Yeah, I have a huge pile of midterms, and I'm delighted to spend an hour and a quarter talking with you and Adam rather than uh, grading. Well, it's been a great discussion. I have, I have a different, yeah, I have a different pile of midterms, and uh, I very much enjoyed the break from them as well. Well, thank you both. I hope that, um, as John suggested, you'll be willing to come back and talk about your next book when it's done. But until then, thanks again, uh, and have a great rest of the semester. Yep. Thank you very much. Thank All you right, very much. Take care. Bye bye. You've been listening to an interview with Adam Jones and John Cox about their books, Genocide, A Comprehensive Introduction, and To Kill a People, Genocide in the 20th Century. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or Stitcher or other podcast providers or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. I hope you'll join me next time when I'll talk with Paul Thomas Chamberlain about his book, The Cold War's Killing Fields, Rethinking the Long Peace. Until then, Thanks for the download and have a great month.